Cageclub.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is it. We are finally here. It is Infinity War. Infinity and beyond. We are going to take a look back at the incredible tapestry that Marvel has woven together with 17 different strands, making this incredible universe feel like one idea, usually, for the most part, we hope. Yeah, you know, it's wild to think how far we have come on this podcast in this franchise as a whole. When it first started, it was such a joke. There had been so many attempts at superhero franchises already. Many were moderately successful, but from the start, the MCU, before it even had that name, was clearly trying to build towards something bigger and bigger that it just then made even bigger every time it reached its new goalpost. And now here we are at the end of an era that has only just recently been titled the Infinity Saga of phases one through three. It's a lot. There's so much to discuss about what went into making these films and this film in particular. And what's really funny is this is truly the first time they are attempting to do what I'm going to refer to as a crossover. Don't get me wrong, Civil War was incredible, but part of me really could believe that Civil War was a Captain America movie. This doesn't even feel like an Avengers movie. This should have been called Marvel Cinematic Universe Infinity War. I understand that it's the third Avengers film, but in so many ways, this movie belongs to so many of the heroes inside of it, and so many of the incredible spotlighted characters are not Avengers. And you know, it's funny, when you look at things through certain different lenses, they take on different appearances. I agree that Civil War isn't a crossover in any way, the way Infinity War is. It's really more like a second secret Avengers movie, no pun intended using Secret Avengers as a phraseology there, but it's like Age of Ultron was the conclusion of the Joss half of the MCU, and Civil War was the beginning of the Marcus McFeely and Russo brothers half of the MCU, much like there's two halves to the final film of the Infinity Saga, even though they stand independently of each other, as the Russo brothers really, 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 really want you to know, they are still interwoven and connected. And it's that connectedness that supports all the best moments of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And to talk a little bit more about the best moments of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it would be a mistake to stand on this side of Infinity War and not take a look back at the three phases that led us here. Especially because at the point we are at before Infinity War comes out, we have had a full phases worth of films. Phases one and two were both six films each, and now Civil War through Black Panther is six whole movies. It's shocking in that regard that phase three is so much longer than phases one and two. Not that I expected that all of the phases would be equal forever, but it is interesting that they went from six films in the first phase with one team movie to six films in the second phase with two team movies. And at some point, I just sort of accepted that most of the 10 films in phase three are all vaguely team films. Yeah, if not teams, certainly interwoven. You don't have a single film, I believe, in the entire third phase without interconnectivity between other 
properties and other titles. I even feel like movies like Doctor Strange and Black Panther didn't just star their titular hero. They managed to create what felt like a fully fleshed out ensemble team for their characters. I know that I very much needed Wong by the end of Doctor Strange to keep me going on Doctor Strange. Hope was a defining element of Ant-Man. So many of these solo films are defined by their larger cast. Who walked away from Black Panther not in love with Okoye or Nakia? And you know, even Homecoming and Ragnarok. Ragnarok expanded Thor's cast in addition to incorporating characters from other franchises. Spider-Man Homecoming didn't grow his team exponentially, but Peter Parker is also a 16, 17-year-old kid still. It introduced his family, his friends, who now he has a friend who knows about his identity. I doubt MJ is going to walk away from Far From Home without finding out that he's Spider-Man. He's growing his own team as well. Even as films start to interconnect, they are still growing in their own right. And with that in mind, let's take a look back at some of our favorite moments and some of our least favorite moments of the first three phases. With phase one, I have to give a shout out to one of the best moments maybe in superhero movies ever. That cash shot at the Battle of NYC and Avengers Assemble. That moment where it slow pans across every one of those heroes and you get that every time. We're getting an isn't it ironic in a minute. So yeah, every time. That's fair. And I completely agree. Overall, I would say that is probably the peak moment of phase one, not just for me, but probably for society. It's the thing that the franchise had been built toward when this slot of films was first announced in 2006. Actually, funny enough, April 27th, 2006, it seemed like a wild dream that it would ever even reach the first part of phase one. We're posting old episodes on our brand new Facebook page. Check us out on Facebook, Husbands Talking More or Less. We're reposting a lot of old episodes, and I commented in the share for Avengers Back when we thought the most exciting thing in the world was this culmination of five whole movies to make the Avengers and that shot at the end of the film. But for me, another peak moment is taking it right back to the beginning and the post credits scene for Iron Man with Samuel L. Jackson. That was filmed with a skeleton crew in one day, and it was so auspicious to think that you would ever reach the Avengers, let alone where we've reached now with Infinity War. I also need to give an honorable mention. My second favorite moment is probably I Am Iron Man, which I think just as much as that Nick Fury scene sets up the possibility of a completely different, completely new, unbelievable Marvel Universe to unfold in the movies. And not only that, but set the tone of the Marvel franchise in that that line itself was improv not scripted. It was not planned that Iron Man was going to out himself. And so much of what we've seen from the MCU came out organically in the process of filmmaking. So yeah, completely. That, that moment is so iconic and important. To an eye roll moment in phase one, I'm sorry, I gotta say it, but isn't it ironic that my number two best moment comes from the same movie that my number one worst moment comes from. Jeff Bridges shouting, isn't it ironic, Tony, that in ridding the world of its weapons, you gave it its greatest one yet. Oh my God. Oh Jesus, what a horrible line. And it's delivered by a terrific actor like he hates it. 
Because it's, again, you know, a script that everybody else was working pretty loosely off of and trying to themselves build more organic dialogue. And, hey, there's an early example of someone who was involved in the MCU who said, this isn't exactly what I want to do and kind of got stroppy about it as opposed to embracing this new creative project the way so many other people have and have enjoyed going along for the ride. Personally, my peak eye roll moment is probably the abomination in The Incredible Hulk as far as ridiculous over-the-top camp villains go. At least Stain represents something that is still a villain in modern culture to this day, this bloated, rich, white, multi-billionaire who cares more about profit than people. Abomination is just one of those villains that you generally tend not to like, too, this mindless, I'm just violent for the sake of violent. It didn't really add a lot to the narrative, and as far as the second major villain for us to have in the MCU, pretty weak. I don't care about Blonsky when he's Blonsky. Mm. Him being Abomination doesn't make me compelled to like him in any way. However, going from an abomination to a beautiful creature, my peak moment from phase two, and this is going to shock everyone who's been listening, is definitely We Are Groot. I think We Are Groot is one of the most beautiful moments in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's just a magical highlight of phase two. And you know, it really does shock me too, but I do see where you're coming from with it. We Are Groot is an encapsulation of everything that we want from Guardians of the Galaxy, and part of why we get so frustrated with all of the other things that aren't as filled with hope and teamwork and the spirit of superhero-ness. For me, my peak moment of Phase 2, you know, it's hard. Phase 2 is such a meandering, middling phase, being in the middle, but Probably Loki as Cap. We saw some wink-nudge moments of synergy in Phase 1 as they were building toward the notion of an interconnected universe. And in Phase 2, we started to see more moments like that, more moments like the Collector in the post credit scene of Thor the Dark World. These actors crossing over into each other's projects and these writers working together to build toward this huge franchise that it's become. And I think one of the reasons I love that moment is because it's one of the most comic-y moments. It feels like something that I would expect to see in a Marvel comic, a panel of Cap randomly showing up. Because in the comics, anybody can transform into anybody like that. Now, to my uh, moment in Phase 2, also from Guardians. (laughs) (laughs) But you're mortal! With Guardians of the Galaxy, bitch, is like the worst two lines back-to-back since... Oh, I was going to say from where I'm standing, the Jedi are the evil ones. Yeah, yeah, that that moment, that was one of the first times in my adult life I can remember almost walking out of a theater. But we'll we'll probably talk about Star Wars on another show someday. It's frustrating because, you know, James Gunn probably enjoys the camp of that moment, and I get that, and revel in it. For me, it's mostly just the word bitch. If you'd call them a prick, it probably isn't meant incendiary. I just hate giving MRA dude bros who see Star-Lord as a machismo hero figure for them. I hate giving them ammunition for the right to use the word bitch derogatorily, even if I think that's probably not exactly what James Gunn meant, and it's feeding once again into our overall problems with Guardians of the Galaxy. Problematic stuff probably wasn't intended to be offensive exactly. Still, you're not quite hitting the mark that you think you are. For me, my... 
uh, moment. Did I pronounce that correctly, Nico? Yes. Uh, however, on every third Thursday, it's pronounced. For me, it's the fact that toward the end of phase two, we started to get into this heroes are the villains territory. I understand that we are trying to talk about ramifications of superheroics and supervillainy with real world consequences because it's set against a real world. It's not the comics. It's not animated. This is live action actors and they're trying to give it live action stakes. But I, as I've mentioned before, always feel that things tend to lean a little bit too heavily toward heroes are more responsible and heroes are bad. And it's the end of Ghostbusters where they take away the proton packs from the Ghostbusters. And of course, now all of the ghosts break out and it turns out the Ghostbusters were heroes all along. If that's all you're going to end up doing, you're kind of devaluing the story you're trying to tell by saying, look at the damage heroes do. I don't think that it's ever handled exactly the way that it should be to get the message that people are going for. Especially because I think the greater purpose of it was setting up the possibility of the response in Civil War. I think so much of it was preparing the universe for the notion that heroes would be on the lamb and on the run and public enemy number whatever. But it does not come across in a clear way. I completely agree. And I think part of the problem is the world doesn't seem to turn on the superheroes except for when the story necessitates it. There's that throwaway joke that we love from Hannibal Buress in Spider-Man Homecoming, where he's like, I'm pretty sure this guy's a war criminal now, but whatever. The world doesn't really care as much as the story seems to tell us about all of these horrible consequences of superheroics, and they try to play both sides of it. And I don't think that it comes across well. That actually brings me to my phase three highlight, which is Cap forming the more or less secret Avengers. I love this team and I love the idea that Cap knows he has to go on the run and he retreats to Wakanda and he pulls together his team and it just makes me happy. I think Cap is the heart and soul of the Avengers and seeing him pull together his elite Cap team out of captivity was pretty cool. I really, really, really agree. I think the only thing about it that makes me sad is the fact that it happened in Phase 3 instead of Phase 4, so we couldn't get a Disney Plus streaming miniseries showing us the Secret Avengers. We see him pick up his people at the end of Captain America Civil War, and as of where we're talking right now, pre-Infinity War, we haven't seen them again. And that would have been really cool to see Secret Avengers missions. You know they're probably off doing something, helping in their own secret way. While I lament the parts of the story we didn't get to see, it is still an amazing story, and it's an awesome direction to take a character like Cap. It feeds into what, for me, is the peak of Phase 3, which is character explosion, even more than we've already had, spawning out of Age of Ultron and Ant-Man and continuing in Phase 3, as we mentioned earlier. All of the superheroes from Phase 3 even ended up developing their own supporting cast within their own films. We see so many new heroes, so many new characters, and so many of them are going to be woven into Infinity War and Endgame. It's just really amazing, again, considering how small this garden first started to see how much it has blossomed. Speaking of gardens and guardians, my least favorite moment in the entirety of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, hands down, the baseball scene from Guardians of the Galaxy 2. It is the most drinking a sip of your dad's 
beer and spitting it out, dreaming of being Holden Caulfield. I just discovered Bukowski, seventh grade. I have seven whiskers on my chin moment I've ever seen in cinema, and I just hate it. It's like literally, it just, it's one of those scenes that doesn't sit right with me. I think everybody's got them, and this scene definitively, I burst out laughing in the theater and got so many nasty looks. And I have to say again, I think James Gunn is laughing right with you. And for me, the bigger issue is that a lot of people in the theater were weeping, even though technically they're playing catch over the bones of all of Quill's siblings that Ego has murdered over the last 30 years, looking for a battery to fuel his expansion project. Power his super dick. Yeah, essentially. So I don't begrudge you that being your big eye roll moment, because I think that Quill is one of those characters who is hotly debated as to whether or not he should be viewed as heroic or kind of sad. My biggest eye roll moment, speaking of figures where you can never tell if they should be heroic or sad, is basically the whole first act of Doctor Strange. Especially in retrospect, I think I've come to say this in discussions with you since the Doctor Strange episode and hadn't thought about it at the time, especially considering it has the time stone in it and turned an existing Marvel Comics relic into an Infinity Stone to make it the Time Stone. I'm very surprised that they didn't play with a much more non-linear storytelling device, starting with his training, going back to show the accident. I feel like if it had just been structured differently, I could have gotten more on board with what a dick Stephen Strange was before the accident, but having us sit through a half an hour of him basically just be a whiny white billionaire who wastes all of his money trying to get what he wants, you know, it was a really ugly opening for that character. I like so much about the mythos they introduced there, and I like the character more in Infinity War, but his own first opening film was a huge letdown. I can't agree more. I think he really was the weak solo film in a phase with a lot of very strong solo films. And from the films that we've seen to the one we've got up next, Kevo, BTS us through the magic that is Infinity War. Well, this is a bit of a unique BTS because I've already spoken extensively about a lot of the people who are involved in making this film. There's really more substantially to talk about the film itself and the BTS and everything that went into getting us all the way here to Infinity War. As early as Thor in 2011 with the now-revealed fake Infinity Gauntlet, we have been inching our way toward understanding and developing the Infinity Stones. The first real mention was Thor The Dark World in 2013 and Guardians the galaxy and now here we are not only have we seen the gauntlet used but destroyed i also want to point out that for those of you playing at home we actually covered the debut of a number of the stones in an episode of excess for podcast that took us on an adventure through marvel team up so it's actually been really exciting to get to see how this narrative came together both in the comics and here in the films it's been really exciting. But back to the films themselves, I partially think the excitement has been watching them play it by the seat of their pants because I don't know that when they started this whole story, they knew which would be the six Infinity Stones. I think they kind of 
magically cherry-picked how it all came together when they saw how people reacted to Thanos. I don't know if I've said this before on the show, but people reacting so positively to Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet, I'm pretty sure most people's memory of the Infinity Gauntlet is Marvel vs. Capcom, not the comics. So, it has been really exciting to see them develop this in their own way to make it its own mythos and not worry too much about how it's going to reflect the comics. I hear a lot of what you're saying, and I think did some research into the shifting release schedules that there were from October 2014 to October 2015. And so, I think you're completely right that they didn't know exactly what they were doing or what road would specifically lead them to Infinity War, but... I think they mostly knew what all the stones were except for time and soul. By the time Infinity War was announced, the Tesseract was space. The Scepter was revealed to be the Mind Stone in Age of Ultron. So by the time they announced Infinity War, they knew it was going to be the Mind Stone. Aether was revealed in Thor the Dark World. The Power Stone was revealed in Guardians of the Galaxy. That only leaves the two that are revealed in Phase 3, one at the very beginning in Doctor Strange being the Eye of Agamotto as the Time Stone, and then the Soul Stone held only for Infinity War itself. So I do agree. I think that there was a lot of changes made to the ladder that led them to Infinity War, but I think they, by the time they announced it, had a pretty clear idea of at least where Infinity War was going to head. But so I'm going to take us back a minute, back to that announcement in October 2014, the first time that we ever heard the phrase Infinity War in conjunction with future Avengers films, and when they announced basically the whole lineup of the Marvel Cinematic Universe Phase 3. At that time, Doc Strange, I believe, had already been slotted for November 2016, so that one didn't change. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 moved up two months from its original release date. Thor Ragnarok was announced as summer 2017 and Black Panther was November 2017. Infinity War parts 1 and 2 as they were originally announced were in their same slots. Captain Marvel was going to be July 2018 and an Inhumans film was going to be November 2018. So those would have come between Infinity War parts 1 and 2. At this time, by the way, Marvel's Captain Marvel's first logo was weirdly reminiscent of the Spider-Man Homecoming logo, so I guess they decided to revamp that once Spider-Man got brought on board. But anyway, that's how it was originally all announced. So many elements of these films changed as they went, which kind of makes me wonder, did movies change to fit Infinity War, or did Infinity War change to fit some of the films? I can't imagine how many different drafts went into putting this all together. There must have been 10 drafts for every schedule change. Yeah, pretty much. Thankfully, the writers hadn't gotten into really developing the plot of the film yet, but I can't imagine how much their heads must have been exploding as then, in the middle of changing their current film, Captain America Civil War, to include Spider-Man, they then then had to reframe what they were already thinking about for had to reframe what they were already starting to think about for Infinity War because even though the title had been announced in October 2014 the directors and writers of the film had not signed on until April and May of 2015 respectively so even before there were writers and directors attached the schedule ended up getting changed again once Spider-Man was brought in in February of 2015 so Thor Ragnarok was moved to its final slot Black Panther was moved to July 2018, so it would have been between parts of Infinity War, and Captain Marvel was moved to November of 2018. Inhumans was moved to after 
after Infinity War, July of 2019. I think one of the most fascinating things about the way the Marvel Universe shook out is the way the Inhumans got dicked a dozen times over. I'm very excited for us to talk about the ride the Inhumans took because there is something incredibly undignified about the, for lack of a better term, pathetic death the Inhumans suffered at the hand of the great scheduling gods and fandom. Absolutely. I really agree with that. With the next schedule change that came to Phase 3, again, only a year after the initial announcement, Inhumans wasn't even mentioned. In fact, the title for Infinity War Parts 1 and 2 was changed before there was even anything mentioned about Inhumans and what was going to happen there. As soon as Infinity War Parts 1 and 2 were announced, people came pretty hard at it. I think we were all really confused and hesitant to see a film have two parts. It kind of makes the first part seem not really as big a deal. Feige and the Russo brothers immediately came out defending the notion of having it be Parts 1 and 2, saying it's two distinct films. But by early May, by a month after the Russo brothers had signed on to the film, they announced that the films were going to be retitled, and by July of 2015, Part 1 became known as solely Infinity War, with the title for Endgame being held until, as we all know, the last few months. It was ultimately in October 2015 that we saw the final roster of what Phase 3 was going to be after Ant-Man was finally released, and they announced Ant-Man and the Wasp would be getting a sequel. Black Panther and Captain Marvel were moved to the slots they ultimately filled, and it was announced that three untitled Marvel Studios films would be coming out in May, July, and November of 2020. It wasn't until April of 2016, though, so months after this announcement that Inhumans was finally taken off of Marvel's release schedule, though not outright canceled. It ends up being shoved onto ABC, not very well critically received. It really was a sad way that that property was treated, and with the way that it shifted around in all these different places, it makes you wonder, were they going to have any sort of impact on Infinity War? I'm left scratching my head at how some of these stories that are so far thought out, where they know what's going to happen two, three years in advance, I want to know how much winds up on the cutting room floor that was... What if this actor is in it? What if this storyline came together? How many other drafts get how filmed before things move forward? Absolutely. I remember that third and final announcement, and our heads had been spinning already with how many times they changed which movies were going where and when, and I remember we were so annoyed that Captain Marvel had been pushed back yet again. We were happy that it was to see the Wasp get a film, but even then she had to share that title with a male character, so that had to happen before. Captain Marvel, even though it had been announced before the Ant-Man sequel, it was just such a confusing time. And Marcus and McFeely started working on Infinity War during the filming of Civil War, so mid-2015. So while they were brainstorming this concept, things were still up in the air. They didn't start writing drafts until January of 2016, when everything had finally been ultimately locked in as to where it was going. And it makes you realize how much of these 11 years have been reactive adapting. Absolutely, and even the process of brainstorming this concept, they said that they would, while filming Civil War, go to the office and read comics and write down ideas, just put everything on the wall, and they sent in literally, they said, 60 pages of unrelated ideas to the studio, just here's all the stuff that could happen in this insane movie. When they came back from filming Atlanta, their treatment was circled, X'd out, 
things like this is cool we're not allowed to do that and then they very slowly had to piece things together from that a lot of what infinity war ultimately ended up being was um pieced together by what everyone who was creatively involved with the mcu ultimately wanted to see the writer's made baseball decks of every single living mcu character that they could still have access to and put them on two separate walls for the films as to who could be in every single one and i'm talking everyone all the way down to darcy's intern ian from thor the dark world was considered to potentially be in these movies one of the things that has made the Marvel Cinematic Universe work so well is its deep well of original characters. While so many of these characters are so well-seated in the comics themselves, characters like Darcy were just breakthrough hits that people really reacted well to. I actually think Darcy got a better response than Jane Foster. So it was really great to hear that they gave her that much consideration that even her side character would get a nod. I agree. And I think it also speaks to the interconnectivity of the entire franchise. The writing of this was very connected with other films. Specifically, directors Scott Derrickson, James Gunn, and Taika Waititi were notably consulted on either the plot or characters of this film. Thor had originally been written into Infinity War as the straight man that he had been throughout his franchise. He was much more of a straight man character to the Guardians before Chris Hemsworth explained the comedic tone that Ragnarok had taken, and massive rewrites were needed for his portions of the film to be more in line with how his character had grown. And it's that attention to detail that's why we're still talking about this. Yeah, in fact, Thor Ragnarok writer Eric Pearson was flown in from Australia and Ragnarok's set to Atlanta to assist Marcus and McFeely because they were also working on stuff with Agent Carter. They were still working on their own film. It's great that we had these writers and these directors be able to set a consistent tone for these major tentpole films, but then they ended up so swamped. And what's great is so many of these directors and writers love working with each other and helping each other that it resulted in such a great product with so many hands working on it. I completely see that. And you know, it's worth noting that this is also a very specific personal vision to all of these creators as well. Um, they outright acknowledge the fact that characters were ultimately chosen based on personal preference of the creative team. As long as the choices felt organic to the storytelling, if you're earning that paycheck, you really need to be doing that anyway, so good. But if you can make it fit your story and you're the people that were chosen to write this story, that's your right. You should use the characters that you want to. And it was always understood that this whole film was going to be this cavalcade of characters. They always understood that they could only focus on a handful of characters and build a story around their emotional arcs and that some of these people were just going to be standing around. But, you know, at the same time, every single movie has people just standing around and they all have their own stories that you don't see going on off screen. Just because it's Black Widow, who we know is this amazing hero, doesn't mean that she necessarily has something super integral to contribute to this narrative at this moment. They made the very specific decision not to dwell on the romance between Romanoff and Banner other than a loaded look because it didn't serve the Thanos plotline. The writers were quoted as saying, there were a lot of situations we wanted to follow up, but nobody in real life would be addressing those things with Thanos coming, which I don't think I have ever in my life heard someone say that about a heterosexual pairing. So when that's normally what you hear about why we can't see gay people in film, it's a little refreshing. It's also worth noting that there are three incredibly visible and vital heterosexual pairings at least 
in this film that do get plenty of screen time and attention. So it's not like there is no romance in this movie. But it, it is good that they were like, there's nothing to say here. The world is ending. And it was a nice moment, ultimately, between those characters. So well handled. Tony's romantic relationship with Pepper is not placed above his paternal relationship with Peter in a way that allows Tony to grow past being a romantic character and become a leader. Absolutely. That's really important to note as well. It's not given any more focus than any of the other relationships in his life. If a romantic relationship is emphasized in this story, it is very specifically important and integral to the plot and the characters. And that was something that they knew they needed to focus on. They had so many characters. When talking about how they wanted to block out the superheroes into smaller groupings, they referred to those sequences as Nashville for superheroes, referring to the 1975 satirical musical comedy drama. Nico, have you ever heard of this movie before? I have heard of it. It's not something I know with great detail, but it's a, it's certainly a reference for them to make. Yeah, yeah. I was a little bit baffled by that being the reference they chose to make, but sure. Like the Russo brothers also compared this apparently to a 1990s heist film, saying that Two Days in the Valley and Out of Sight were sources of inspiration for them. Man, these guys just, they have a really unique perspective, and I think that is part of why Disney trusted them so much. Yeah, I agree. Right down to the fact that apparently there was an early draft of the script that was basically written from Thanos' perspective. That would not have fit the hero's journey that we've gone on so far. Yeah, he would have served as the narrator in a nonlinear storytelling fashion. There would have been a lot more backstory for the Black Order members. They ultimately decided not to use it, but felt that it gave them better insight into the character. I genuinely wonder how audiences would have reacted, especially with how audiences have already reacted to Thanos and people saying Thanos is right and blah, blah, blah. I wonder with him being probably more of a sympathetic character in that draft what people would now say about the film i don't understand finding thanos either sympathetic or likable it's but i would have appreciated a little bit more focus on the black order yeah they do all sort of blur together it's hard to find a place to do more with those characters without taking attention away from the characters we've spent 10 years getting to know. And it's for that same reason that it's so important that the story wasn't from Thanos' point of view. We've spent so much time coming to identify and associate with these heroes. Losing their perspective would be upsetting. Yeah, I don't want to spend a huge portion of the nearly anti-penultimate film of this saga learning about these bad guys in this one movie only to see them die immediately i don't love how one-dimensional they are but if they're only in like an hour basically of the entire mcu they don't need to have that many dimensions to them they're all creepy and evil and they serve thanos and if you need more information you can get out of the comics i also don't know how thanos led movie would have fed into the one that comes after this exactly they w wrote these films pretty concurrently and were originally supposed to film them concurrently when they were on the third draft of part one they were on the second draft of part two it wasn't until much later that they decided to film these movies one after the other instead of at the same time much to the russo's chagrin they would have preferred doing it all at once but it was filmed over the course of basically an entire year filming started january 27th 2017 part one concluded july 14th part two picked back up august 10th and finally it all finished january 11th 
2018. I also feel a very defensive need to point out because a lot of people make fun of poor little Tommy Holland for how he isn't given anything except for the line he needs to immediately say. For the record, no one was given the entire script. Some of the characters who were in more scenes than others had access to additional scenes, but there were also fake scenes and redacted scenes that were leaked to production and cast to help keep secrecy and help keep people on their toes about what was actually going to happen here. So we like to make fun of Tom Holland and the things that he spoils a lot, but no one had a clear picture of what this movie was going to be before the movie came out, and least of all, us. So... I guess here we are. And that really reverberates with something so funny that Chris Evans has been saying lately that he cried so many times watching the film. Yeah, I could believe Chris Evans had no idea all of the pieces that come together. It's been such a fascinating ride, and poor little Tommy Holland, he does get a bum rap, but it's supposedly Zoe Saldana who leaked that the fourth movie was going to be called Infinity Gauntlet, and that's what led to the title being changed. So, really, these spoilers come from all over the place. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I had actually read James Gunn was quoted as saying that the Guardians were going to be important to Avengers 3 as early as four months before Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 even came out. So April 2014, someone was saying how a movie that hadn't even come out yet was going to affect a movie that was going to come out five years later. You know, everyone's slipped up at different times. In promoting Iron Man 1 back in March of 2008, Robert Downey Jr. mentioned his scene with William Hurt's Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross, and he was pretty cagey, but if you read between the lines, he's talking about the scene he was in where Ross is disgraced. It's hard. There's so many things in this universe, and this whole time there have been so many things leading up to so many things. It's hard to keep it all under wraps. Well, now there's nowhere left to go but forward into the Infinity War itself. That was the behind the scenes that led us to Avengers 3. Kevo, until we're ready to try and stop the snap, where can everybody find you? You can find me as usual on Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, or you can find me posting a whole bunch of crazy nonsense over on our Facebook page, Husbands Talking More or Less, over on Facebook. As always, you can check out our webcomic, Kid Riot, at KidRiotComics.com. You can also hear our other show, X's for Podcast, where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men franchise, along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle. I also hang out on Now and Again with my childhood best friend Chris, where we take a look at the Now That's What I Call Music series, and this summer we're doing a special on Carly Rae Jepsen. You don't want to miss it. There's other amazing shows here on the Cage Club Network, so check out the Patreon and consider donating. All right, until next time, we'll see you guys. Let's do this. Infinity is more than just a 